All right. Well, let's go ahead and wake ourselves up with our, our exercise. So guys, come on. I know that some of you are on the verge of falling asleep. Let's go ahead and stand up. Uh, Mike, maybe this is something that you can introduce for your cardiac therapy. It's a really intense exercise, again, brought by David Hernandez, so you can thank him the next time he comes to town in the spring. So we're going to go through this. We went through it last week. We'll go through it twice. So the first time, those of you who don't know it, you can watch and then join us the next time. We're going to say the words and do the motions, all right? It's going to be keep low, look up, and press forward. All right. I expect everyone participating the second time. Dan, I see you in the back. You can join us too. All right. I'm watching you guys. Keep low. Look up. Press forward. All right. Uh, you can go ahead and take a seat again now. Great mottos for living life overall, isn't it? Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, thank you for Sunday. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you have done and all that you have given to us. Help us to truly know what you have done for us. Help us to know what you want for us. And let it help us to love, to trust, and to follow you more for the rest of our lives as a result. Amen. All right. Every good story has four elements. Well... People, those of you who, who know more about stories will probably have different theories that are even better than this, but this is what I'm going with today, all right? Every four story, good story has at least four elements. First, there is a desire where the main character wants something, has a goal, and then there is an obstacle, something that gets into the way of the main character being able to reach that goal. And then you have the third aspect, a, a building tension. This is where most of the story takes place as things keep going wrong as the, the main character is trying to, to overcome the obstacle, but things keep getting in the way and it looks worse and worse. And you're wondering, how, how are you finally going to reach the end? And then finally, at the end, you reach the climax, this point of victory, where victory is snatched seemingly from the jaws of defeat. I'd like us to view our relationship with God in this light as well today. But whereas normally what we might think of as in our relationship to God, we might think of us trying to relate to God, but us having an obstacle that we need to overcome, I want you to, to join me in thinking about this from the perspective of the true main character of the story, Jesus so we're going to be looking at the desire, the obstacle, the building tension, and the victory in the story of Jesus. First of all, what is Jesus' desire presented to us throughout the Bible? The desire of Jesus, the desire of God, is pretty clear. He wants a perfect relationship with us. After all... That's the way he made things to be from the very beginning, isn't it? He created this world and it was good. That's how he made everything to be. Good, very good, perfect. But then an obstacle came into his path. And that obstacle was us. We rejected the tree of life. And instead we chose another tree. What was the name of that tree called? Anyone? 
The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Thank you. Now this name for the tree that Adam and Eve, and therefore all of humanity, chose is not an arbitrary name. It could have been called the tree of, of rebellion. It could have been called the tree of, of evil. It could have been called the tree of fruitcakes. I, I don't know what it could have given, given any name, but it was given this name, and the name is important. Because you see... When we were first made, we started out in a relationship with God, a relationship of trust. And when we chose that other tree, we chose to relate to God through a knowledge of good and evil. Other words that you and I might use for that today are words like morality and justice. And that's been true of the world ever since, isn't it? Ever since that day, humanity as a whole has defined our relationship with God in terms of earning. Look at every religion of the world outside of Christianity and how it says you are to connect with your eternal destiny, however that religion may define it. And it always comes down to earning, to molding yourself, molding your behavior, molding your thoughts and your character until you are acceptable for whatever standard is out there. This is how the world tries to relate to God But under such a system, we always lose. We always lose. Either we choose what is evil, and we deserve judgment, or we choose good, and we become entitled, don't we? I go to church, I pray, I give, I'm an overall good person. Why is this bad thing happening to me, right? We get this entitlement mentality even when we choose what is good. Either way, when we relate to God according to a knowledge of good and evil, we miss out on the joy of a close relationship of love and trust. How many of you have had found you probably have had phases of your marriage some phases better some worse how many of you would say my highest point of marriage is when my spouse and I had this relationship of a point system where I do so many good things and then I tell my spouse he or she has to do so many things because I've contributed so much and so they had better how many have found their marriage to thrive under those conditions I would say none right That's not how we're made to relate to God either. If it was, wouldn't you think we'd have been made that way from the start? So Jesus has an obstacle. The obstacle is us trying to relate to him through a knowledge of good and evil. But we don't get to jump straight to the conclusion. In this story, we get to see a building of the tension first. You see... You and I chose the wrong tree. Well, it was Adam and Eve, but, but we still choose that, that option so often, don't we? Why? Why did Adam and Eve choose that fruit? Well, first of all, because it was delicious. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the reason that most of us eat food? Just look at Thanksgiving that just passed. But also because of the promise that when we eat from that tree, we would gain wisdom. 
and we would be like God. And guess what? That fruit did what it promised in a way, didn't it? When we ate that tree, when Adam and Eve ate from that that fruit, they became like God in that they knew the difference between good and evil. And it did its work, gave that wisdom in much the same way that pouring tomato sauce on your keyboard will make it taste like pizza. It'll get the job done. Your keyboard will taste more like pizza if you pour cheese and tomato sauce all over it. But that doesn't mean that's what your computer, your keyboard was designed for. It wasn't designed to be a pizza, my friends. And you were not designed to relate to God according to this method, this kind of a relationship of earning. But here's the thing. Adam and Eve chose that way to relate to God and the rest of us have chosen it ever since. Words like rights, justice, fairness. These ideas reverberate in our heads, don't they? We most naturally gravitate toward these when we think of God and of others and of ourselves. And God needed us to know that this is not actually the right way. So what did he do? He created his own personal nation. And he gave them a law. A way to relate to him according to a knowledge of good and evil. Just a second. And when God gave this law, he had Moses and the Israelites build a tent... And he gave them a special thing that no other nation in the world had. In this tent, there is a holy place and there was a most holy place. And in this most holy place where there is an ark, a box with the terms of the covenant relationship with Israel. Above that was the very presence of God dwelling, being revealed in a way that it was not revealed in any other place on the earth. God had a very special and a very real relationship with God, given because of this very good law. But I ask you, when you have a perfect God, reveal a system for people to relate to Him, you'd expect that system to be perfect, wouldn't you? To do perfectly whatever it was designed to do. Would we we agree with that? Yeah. A perfect God designs a system. It's going to be perfect for what it designs to do. And that is true. It was perfect for the purpose God wanted it to be. But Hebrews shows us that if we try to use the law to make people right with God, it fails. It utterly and completely fails to do so. But not because it's flawed, not because anything's wrong with the law, because that's what it's designed to do. It's designed, the law is to show you and to show me that when we try to relate to God according to the knowledge of evil, we can't. We even see this caked into, built into the way that the law was designed. 
After all, the glory of God resided in that temple, in the tabernacle, where the priests did their work. But were the priests able to see the glory of God on a regular basis? Anyone? Yeah, nodding or shaking heads? No. Thank you. I'm seeing some heads shaking and nodding. Some people are staying awake. When the priests went in, they were able to go into the holy place and do some things. But where God's presence was, they were even closed off from that. Only one person could go in, and that was the high priest. And how, how often could he go in? Only once a year. And only then if an animal had been sacrificed on his behalf beforehand. Why is this? The author describes the reason, the illustration of this to us in Hebrews 9, verses 8 through 10, when he says, The Holy Spirit is making clear that the way into the holy place has not yet appeared as long as the old tabernacle, the old tent, was standing. This was a symbol. This whole way that the people approach God and only the priests go into the holy place and only high priest goes into the holy, most holy place once a year. All of this was a symbol for the time then present when gifts and sacrifices were offered that couldn't perfect the worshiper's conscience. They only serve for matters of food and drink and various ritual washings. Their external regulations imposed until the new order came. The old system was never made to make us perfectly right with God. And we must understand that. Now, it wasn't that the old system doesn't do anything. He says a couple of verses later in verse 13, that the blood of, of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on those who are defiled did something, didn't it? It consecrated them and it provided ritual purity. By purifying, it hid the sins of the worshiper from God. It covered over them. And by consecrating them, literally what that means is to make holy or it set them apart so that they could worship. There is something that the sacrifices truly did. It truly and rightly purified and consecrated them. But it also was something that it could not do. The gifts and sacrifices offered could not, could never perfect the conscience of the worshiper. We need to understand that. This is what the law is telling us. Because it seems so right, doesn't it, for relationships to be defined according to morality and to justice, right? According to that knowledge of good and evil. We lean that way so easily and so often. But you cannot, you never will be able to develop intimacy and trust in an atmosphere of judgment. Not, to, not that you can't have right and wrong, but we need a better way to understand a true, deep relationship. Once again, the author actually explains it in Hebrews chapter 10 in the beginning. When he says, the law possesses the shadow of the good things to come, but not the reality itself and is therefore completely unable by the same sacrifices offered continually year after year to perfect those who come to worship. For otherwise, 
wouldn't they have ceased to be offered since the worshippers would have been purified once for all and so have no further consciousness of sin? But those sacrifices, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is what I'm trying to drive at here. Let me, let me try to sum it up for you. You and I have an instinctual desire to relate to God according to a system of morality, according to a, a knowledge of good and evil, according to the idea of earning God's love. And the law provides such a system. But it doesn't do so only to tell us how we can relate to God, but to show us how ultimately you and I will never be good enough to relate to God on our merit, on our works. As long as you say, I know I'm going to heaven, I know I'm right with God because of the good things I do, you will never know if you have done enough to be secure forever. And as long as you say, I know I'm right with God because of the evil I don't do, you'll never know whether you have sinned too much or not. You will never have that confidence. You will never know that you are right with God, that God truly loves you. This is the tension that has been building. So how do we move from the desire to the obstacle to the tension onto the victory? Because some of you, as I've been talking, may have been saying, Pastor Adam, I'm getting a little uncomfortable here. It almost sounds like you're saying there is no good and evil, right? And we need to just throw out the ideas of good and evil and just say God loves everyone and, and who cares about what's good and evil? Well, let's just get rid of all that altogether, right? That doesn't make sense for us. Because you, we know the Bible tells us very clearly God is just. And we have chosen the way of morality, to relate to God according to this part of God's character that is truly there. Because God is just. He is perfect. He is holy. He does not have any sin in Him. And indeed, we rightly say that our sin incurs a debt against God that must be paid. So, if Jesus is to overcome that obstacle, He needs to find a way to satisfy the demands of justice to make sure that all the sins are paid for and get what they should deserve and at the same time to relate to you and me in a way that we totally do not deserve. And that's where we get to Hebrews 10.5 where Jesus enters the scene, enters into this, this picture beautifully and he says, sacrifice and offering you didn't desire but a body you prepared for me. Friends, this is the good news. The good news and that four words says, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. He paid for every sin ever with the sacrifice of His body. We see Jesus 
Being, we're specifically told about this by the author John in both his Gospel of John, where he quotes John the Baptist, who before Jesus has done a single thing, points at him and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of people who have believed in him, at least to the point that they believed in him, but really, after that, then you've got to figure out a different way. No. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin... Of those who have believed in him only? No. Can someone give a nice shout out when I, and finish a sentence when I say the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of what? Someone. The world. The world. He takes away the sin of the world. And the same author, when he's writing a letter to some churches, he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he himself is the propitiation. That's our, our 50 cent word there, remember? Where propitiation means the, he is the one who satisfies the demands of justice for our sins, but not only for our sins, but also for the sins of, one more time, the world. Let me tell you some good news. Some wonderful news. That news is that you and I had a sin problem. Did you catch where the good news comes in there? The good news is that the word, the verb here, had, is in past tense. Because if it is a present tense thing, if we have a sin problem, then Jesus' sin, Jesus' sacrifice may have done something, but if our sin problem still remains, then we need to deal with our sin problem, don't we? We need to find a way through our commitment, through our obedience, through our endurance and our perseverance, through doing more good and doing less evil and getting progressively better and better, we need to find a way to earn God's love, either beforehand or retroactively afterwards. But that is not the story that the Bible tells us. It tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. His death satisfied all demands of justice, paying for every sin for all time, forever, in one sacrifice. Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 14 says, When this priest, Jesus, had offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at God's right hand, where he is now waiting until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Why? For by one offering, he's perfected for all time those who are made holy. Literally. Those verses are saying Jesus died once, he gave his sacrifice, and then he sat down, kicked up his feet on a footstool, and said something to the effect of, well, I'm glad I don't have to do that again. And you know what? I'm glad that he doesn't have to do that again either. Because it's because of this one-time sacrifice that God is able to truly say, in 1017, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no longer. This is good news. The demands of justice against your sins will never 
reach you because they have been paid in full on the cross. Now I want to give you a couple notes. Because there are some ways that people might take what what I'm saying and twist it in a way that the Bible never intended, okay? First of all, this does not mean that everyone is going to be saved. Because we may not have a sin problem anymore. Our sin may not be standing between us and God because of the death of Jesus. But that does not mean that everyone is going to be saved. Because while we had a sin problem, we are born having, present tense, a death problem. From birth, Jesus clearly tells us that He gives us eternal life. When we trust in Him, everyone who believes in Him has eternal life. But only those who believe in Him have eternal life. You don't have to earn it. Indeed, you can't. And you mustn't ever think that you could. But He's not going to force Himself on you either. Just like He didn't force Himself on Adam and Eve, and He didn't force them not to take the fruit, He's not going to force any of you to be with Him forever. It takes trusting His promise because of His work. That's the first quick note. The second one is that this does not mean that believers are free to run wild. You see, when you trust in Jesus, you receive God's life in you and you become a child of God. But here's the good news, actually. God does not let His children run wild. He cares for you. And He will do what it takes to help you grow to look like Jesus in whose character you have been built. And sometimes... When possible, that's going to mean teaching and encouraging you to grow more like Christ. And when necessary, that will mean discipline. We're actually going to get there next week. Come next Sunday, right? But what does it mean? What this means is a wonderful, barely comprehensible truth. That God no longer deals with you and me according to a knowledge of good and evil. He no longer deals with us according to justice. He no longer deals with us according to what we deserve. He deals with us according to grace. Justice gives you what you deserve. Grace lovingly gives you what you don't deserve. Perhaps the best evidence for this to show you this is not Adam Hamill talking, this is the Bible talking, is this climactic verse of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 17, where he says, Now where there is forgiveness of these, what are these? The sins and lawless deeds that he won't remember. He says, where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. I know we're not a stand-up-and-cheer kind of people, but this is a moment where, where where other people might stand up and cheer by seeing there's no offering for sin because we look at this and say, Yay! Thank goodness that no more sin offering is needed ever again. There will never be a thing that I do 
that I will say, oh, that goes beyond Jesus' death for me. I'm not sure Jesus' death covers that. We'll never have to say that again. Everything that we have ever done wrong that deserves justice and judgment has been paid for by Jesus. The only thing that ever stands between you and God is not your sin. It's not that you don't deserve it. It is whether or not you trust in Him. So I want to ask you, how many of us are still hung up on the demands of justice? How many of us still define our relationships according to morality? This can show up when something good happens and you think God's rewarding you for being good, or it can show up when something bad happens and you think it's because you deserved it. Here's the thing. God does. In the Bible, he clearly says he rewards obedience, but I don't think we understand how he rewards obedience. We think of it like I painted the Mona Lisa and God gives me several million dollars. But really what it is is more like Brenity, my five-year-old, draws me her picture of her version of the Mona Lisa and I pay her a million dollars, not because it's worth that, but because I delight in rewarding her. The obedience, the rewards for the obedience, even that is an act of grace. And when I disobey, God does discipline me, but he doesn't do it as a punishment to get back at me. Like, oh, you did that. I'm so angry at you. I'm just, you hurt me. I'm going to hurt you back. No, when God disciplines us, it's for our love. It's out of grace to say, I need you to understand what is good for you and you don't get it. So I'm going to bring discipline in your life because this is what you need to grow. We need to understand that God relates to us through wisdom, love, and grace. Not through justice and getting back at us or repaying us for what we've done. Now, for most of us, that's probably enough. I know I don't grasp that nearly as much as I should. And we all can and should spend our lives trying to understand the depths of God's grace and the way it can transform us better than our old style of thinking could. But I want to go one step further. I want you to think of how you relate to others and to yourself. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've hurt others. Maybe you see people around you hurting those that you love. And maybe all that is in you desperately cries out for justice to be done. That the person who's done the wrong... You say they they deserve to get what's coming to them. Sometimes we even say that about ourselves. Are you ready for the hard lesson, for the advanced grace lesson? Jesus' blood covered that too. Jesus' death paid for the sins of the whole world, including those sins that hurt your heart. And where there's forgiveness of these... No more sacrifice for sins is needed. Like I said, it's an advanced lesson in grace, isn't it? 
wisdom, love, and grace, practically speaking, may lead us, when, when someone hurts us, to endure it with patience. Again, wisdom, love, and grace may lead in some situations where, where someone might be hurting you or those you love to, to pull away and to separate But we need to understand that when we do this as believers, we are able to do this with love and forgiveness, even for the person doing the harm. Where we say, you've hurt me, and whether I stay together close to you or whether I pull away, it is out of love because this is what is best for you to help you to know the love of Jesus and be transformed to look more like him. Everything we do is out of love and grace as little Christs, as Christians. Now this idea of showing love, grace, and wisdom to others can be really difficult, can't it? Really difficult. This is why it requires not just love and grace, but wisdom to know how to do that. This is why it takes time, endurance, and the encouragement of mature Christians before we can begin to master it. We don't master this by ourselves, and we don't master this in a day. Now, some of you may be to the point where you're ready to deal with deep hurts, but some of you are are far from being able to deal with something so heavy. So let me leave you with just two steps, two takeaways. First of all, dive into the depths of God's grace for you. Swim in his faithful love, exploring how that would change the way you think about how he thinks about you, and how that lens could shift your perspective about life. And second, when thinking about showing that love to others, start small, with the little annoyances, all right? You don't have to go to the really big things. There's plenty of little annoyances in your life that you could start practicing about this with. Start with those things that aren't that painful and practice acting towards that out of love, wisdom, and undeserved grace toward people in those areas. Let God work at his own pace. He'll bring you to the big stuff eventually. But he'll prepare you for that first. Developing those spiritual muscles to the point where you're ready to handle the bigger things eventually. Remember, our God is a God of love and grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your victory. With one sacrifice you paid for all sins for all time, providing forgiveness in which you remember our sins and lawless deeds no more. And where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer remains a demand for another sacrifice for their sins, but the promise of life to everyone who believes in you, and the promise of abundant life to every person who grows and matures, not in becoming more good as if they'd earned it, but growing and maturing in the way that they learn to trust you more. Jesus, as we prepare to take communion, as we prepare to remember your death, Help us to grow in our trust of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand as we sing a song.